This is Legs Malone. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Lunch with Legs podcast, episode four. That was The Lady of Vastness by Dan O at danosongs.com playing just now. My beautiful interviewee and very close friend, Miss Joe Boobs Weldon, is going to be the woman you will be hearing so much about in just a second. Joe is the founder of the New York School of Burlesque, as well as the author of the Burlesque Handbook, an amazing book, especially for those of you who are interested or know somebody who is interested in getting into burlesque. Before I fully introduce the interview, again, this is going to be just a little reminder for those maybe interested in sponsoring. Please email us at lunchwithlegs at gmail.com if you want to sponsor the Lunch With Legs podcast. So, moving on. Joe Boobs Weldon, she is an extraordinary woman who has lived one of the wildest lives of any stripper, sex worker, burlesque performer, hot woman that I know of. You're going to be hearing plenty about her in just a second, so I'm going to get out of my own way and introduce my interview with the one and only Miss Joe Boobs Weldon. <laughs> Lunch with Legs. Joe Boobs Weldon, thank you so much for being here today. It's such a pleasure to have you at my dining room table. Legs Malone, it's so nice to be here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so, I, I'm, I'm so excited on so many fronts to be talking to you today because you, more than most women I know, have not only an incredibly diverse background, um, but a real dedication and just you do so much and you do it so well and you have so many fascinating viewpoints and opinions especially around sex work and women and being seen in the public eye I, I don't know anybody else quite as qualified as you are to be able to talk about things like this and all of the naughty women from whence we are <laughs> descended and uh but also just, I mean, what sex work is, what it, I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sort of, this is my fangirl moment. Like, oh, oh, and I'm sitting girls. here going, oh, man, I can never live up to this. No. <laughs> <laughs> but well, hi, thank you. <laughs> of course, of course. And, I mean, I, we, we ran into each other a couple days ago, and we were talking about, you know, like, what to talk about. And I would, of course, love to talk about, you know, how the New York School of Burlesque came about um, to, and it was with you that I took my first ever burlesque class ever back in April of 2006. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's been a minute. Um, but um, you were talking about um, some interviews that you're going to be working on coming up and write, what, writing a book? What, what, what are you going to be doing? Well, I'm, I'm interested in women who sort of created their own careers, mm. you know, something that didn't really exist or that didn't really exist as an independent thing. 
So I'm interested in women who are entrepreneurs in general, but a lot of times that means, you know, they started a, a large makeup company or they um, took over a magazine empire or started one or they, you know, and I'm interested in sort of a more, uh, more intimate entrepreneurialism. Mm -hmm. So some of them, you know, they do become bigger deals and I'm not opposed to these bigger concepts of business, but I'm interested in people who just invented a world and then, mm. you know, so they could live in it and be the boss of it. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like you, huh? <laughs> um, I, well, some way, in some ways, yeah. I mean, I had, and, and I think all of us have forebears. Like, you know, for me, it was like Indigo Blue and I started teaching about the same time and she started before I did. And I had had my own business before. And um, so we, you know, fed back and forth. And um, I was inspired by, you know, she had an academy of burlesque, and I, I said, I want a school of burlesque. School means two things to, to me. Like, there's a school of thought. Mm. So behind the school of burlesque, there's a mission statement that has to do with community and legacy and wild women and that, you know, other elements. It's in our mission statement on the website, which I can't remember right now. I'm really no. shameful. Um, which people, which people can read it. Is it NewYorkSchoolOfBurlesque.com? SchoolOfBurlesque.com. School we also of own all the other things that people might type in that would lead to there because I came onto the Internet having my own websites early. I adopted a technology early as a dominatrix also. Mm. So I was one of the first dominatrixes to be, like, moderating, you know, um, Internet browser-based forums and wow. uh, had my uh, you know dominatrix website before very many doms ran their own websites and that kind of thing. So uh, that was interesting. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, and that's how I got interested in... When I started going to a lot of burlesque shows, I had already stopped performing. So um, I was dedicating a lot of my time and resources to being an activist on you know, sex workers' rights activist and an anti-censorship activist. And I had pretty much stopped performing in, I want to say, 96, 97, right before I moved to New York. I sold all my big props and costumes that I had had as a feature dancer in strip joints, mm -hmm. which has many elements of, you know, burlesque performance. Um, like, that's where I did my first feather fan dance in 92 in a strip joint and all that wow. kind of thing as a feature dancer. But... I had stopped performing because one does get burned out. Um, and I was, had devoted everything to being an activist. While I was an activist, I was also a sex worker. So mm. mostly working in domination, but also occasionally, you know, I'd get, I would get a Jones and I'd go work at a strip joint for a few weeks and um, that kind of thing. Mm. So I got very fascinated as, you know, the Internet developed a, a forum for sex workers to have their own websites and that kind of uh, interactivity with clients, that kind of thing. Got really interested in it. And I saw former strippers who became entrepreneurs. And mm. the first stripper that I saw that I thought of as an entrepreneur was Melissa Wolf, who uh, was a feature dancer that developed all this merchandise. So she had, you know, her calendar and all these other things that I had never seen anyone else have. You know, people had like their 8x10s, but she developed this whole line of merchandise. And also, um, she owned a Baskin Robbins and she did the, what? yeah, the first ever, um, so she did a tribute to her other business in her show. She uh, did a split on top of ice cream 
Oh and I don't know if she invented this, but I know that it was original. Like she thought of it, which doesn't mean she was the first person to do it. There's a mm-hmm. difference between originating something and being the first person ever to do it, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so I, you know, so I, I started, and then everybody started doing it. All the feature dancers started doing splits on ice cream because Melissa Wolf owned this Baskin Robbins and I did it too, you know, and, and she was, she thought it was hilarious. And as a feature dancer, you had to have certain things in common with other feature dancers. Like, you know, this being the early nineties, everybody had to do white wedding and hot for teacher and all that. So, but we were expected to do it. And then everybody had a few numbers that were their own you know, wilder thing, but you had to be prepared for graduation parties and bachelor parties and bachelor, bachelor parties, no bachelorette <laughs> parties. At that time, there were no bachelorette parties and strip joints, believe me. So, yeah, so that, you know, that kind of entrepreneurialism. And there was a woman named Fania who was the first person I ever knew of who started a pole dance academy, and this was in the 90s. Mm. And actually, pole dancing wasn't popular in strip joints when I worked there. There weren't really? pole dancers. No, not until the 90s. I never saw it. Wow. The first, like, 10, 12 years I worked in strip joints, I never saw anybody climb a pole. Oh, wow, and just looking at strip clubs today. No, nah, I'd just lean on them when I was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> they were they were not, you know, and there were no acrobatics and stuff. But also in a lot of the strip joints where I worked, we were required in some cases by law to keep our knees no, no further than six inches apart and our feet no further than six inches apart. So pole dancing was illegal oh, in some of these clubs. Gosh. Wow. Yeah. So... Oh, my gosh. So I was interested in these, and I started a website called G-Strings Forever, even though I was working as a dom at the time. The interesting thing about working as a dom at the time is this being very early on and people having access to information about dominatrixes, dominatrices, pardon me. (laughs) Um, Get my plurals right. (laughs) Um, So, you know, it was considered... uh, like the, a truly dominant woman, I you saw me make the little quote marks, right? Because truly dominant to most of the people who bitched about it meant uh, a dominatrix who doesn't do anything I don't do from another dominatrix's point of view or from the point of view of a client, a dominatrix who does what I like. Mm-hmm. That's a true dominant woman. Um, and they didn't strip. These women didn't strip because that was thought of as unskilled labor, whereas professional domination was thought of as skilled labor and the guys never touch you. And I was like, it's all... There are dominatrixes like that, but uh-huh. it's the same as with strippers. There's every single kind of stripper you can think of. There's every kind of dominatrix you can think of. So there's, there are full-service doms, mm-hmm. and there are doms you know, who never let their clients within six inches of them. And if they know how to tie people up without cutting off their circulation, then I consider them to be pretty truly dominant. That's mm-hmm. enough for me, you know, like mm-hmm. this whole other sort of fantasy should be kept as a fantasy. In other words, if you want to keep it as a fantasy, you don't quiz people about their past. You're paying for the fantasy, and you hope that they're safe. You know, you hope that they know how to follow safe procedures in BDSM. um, So I got very... I felt like it was slut-shaming, what we are calling these days slut-shaming, which Mm. has always been a big issue in my life. I've been conscious of slut-shaming since I was a little teeny tiny girl, and what would you just define slut-shaming as? Uh, I mean, slut-shaming slut shaming is implying to people that if their sexual behavior is intended to do anything besides mate, if their sexual behavior is at any time anything other than completely sincere in terms of uh, presenting a flawless ladylike presentation to the public, that they deserve whatever they get. They were asking for it, and you don't have to respect them or treat them 
with the same level of respect and regard as you do other women who I'm not sure these other women exist, but that's okay. You know, I wouldn't want to say they don't. No, no, God, of course. <laughs> but so, <laughs> so definition. it was like the, it, but I always said, what I used to say about it is that I felt that going from standing on a table naked in front of a room full of people to standing in a room peeing on one individual dude was a lateral move at best, <laughs> socially speaking. <laughs> you know, I feel like nudity is, is more universal and more easy to comprehend than some of the things that go on in S&M sessions. You know, like someone may say, well, you know, my husband likes to go to the club and look at naked women and, you know, and some people go, well, that might bother me, but, it, you know. If you say, well, my husband likes to dress up like a French maid, get spanked, penetrated, and peed on, nobody's going to get it. Mm -hmm. You know, to me, that's kind of the definition of a fetish is like, you don't get it. Hmm. You know, only the person that has it really gets it. So, you know, it lacked that universality, which is why I don't write about it very much. Mm. Um, I'm more interested in things that are universal, that have a universal touch. And what was universal there was I had a sense of respecting the privacy of my clients. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to talk about them. I didn't want to make characters out of them. Where I had no such compunction about the guys that hang out in strip joints. No, absolutely. <laughs> I don't know why the difference is. But I felt like I was being entrusted with some very private behavior, behavior that was so they were making themselves vulnerable to me in a very, very, very special way. Yeah. Ways that they really couldn't share, you know, like they were not at a football game and, oh man, last night this chick beat the crap out of me with best flogger. You know, they're not having those conversations <laughs> at football games. Right. So I felt like I was being trusted with very precious cargo. And I just don't, mm. you know, I don't mind saying what it, what I did in sessions, but I don't want to talk about them. No, absolutely. And I respect that. Yeah. I mean, that's, and I, I would always ask them, please don't talk about me. If you review me on a review board, please don't describe the specifics of what went on in the session. Mm -hmm. And I'll do the same for you. You know, mm -hmm. so it wasn't, that isn't a threat. I wouldn't have done it anyway. Right, right, right. Even if they had smeared me, I wouldn't have smeared them. But so, um, but anyway, back to the internet, all these, all these uh, strippers were using the internet to become entrepreneurs. And there were also a lot of, um, a lot of issues of uh, race and class and uh, gender issues were being discussed more openly than ever before because people could get on there. And, you know, it's certainly um, a mark at that time, very much a mark of a privileged class to have access to the Internet. And yet these conversations had not happened before. Yeah. So seeing these entrepreneurial strippers was huge for me. I was so excited and I made the website G-Strings Forever to celebrate my stripper friends. And then I got interested in burlesque in New York City and at the time I wasn't sure I wanted to perform so I was photographing it and I was using some crazy ancient thumbnail program. Like there was no Flickr, you know, there was no YouTube. So I was using like Thumbs Plus or something to create these galleries that of rather fuzzy pictures, mm -hmm. you know, and I had the first digital camera anybody had seen at these clubs and stuff like wow. that. Oh, my God. I love that camera. Oh, my God. <laughs> I still remember my Olympus 4040C, man. That thing was magical. But the pictures weren't necessarily high journalistic quality, which I had been. I had studied, you know, photography for journalism in my when I did graduate work for journalism oh, cool. in, at school. So I was capable of doing that, but I was used to shooting on slide film. 
So shooting on digital, the instant gratification factor after shooting on slide film was so huge. And I felt like I was able yeah. to show the entire world, like, you must see this stuff. And um, yeah. I saw the Velvet Hammers website on which uh, Liz Goldwyn and Michelle Carr and some other people had done these incredible interviews. Like, they had interviewed Hot Honey Harlow and Liz Renee and Anton LaVey. And so I started interviewing people for my website, um, taking after that. So, um, yeah, so that was really exciting. So it became, you know, part these entrepreneurial strippers and part neo-burlesque. But when I very first came to neo-burlesque, a lot of people gave me a hard time about my sex work background. That, really? Yes, that I was not able to understand and communicate in the way a person trained in theater or dance would be able to do this high art, which at the time was still happening in bars and cabarets, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and that, you know, um, but a lot of people didn't think that. Mm -hmm. And I did, like, the stuff that I did originally was, political in a different way than what I ended up doing. Like at the time there weren't very many uh classic performers um in New York. There were there were Dirty Martini and Bonnie Dunn and I was doing sort of that classic showgirl thing and I felt like I was connecting to the women who did it um in the thirties and forties and fifties that were outcasts. Mm. So to me it didn't read the more mainstream acceptable form of burlesque. It was because it related to sex work the less acceptable form of burlesque at that time. So I didn't feel, it wasn't that hard for me. I just did it and people put me on stage. So Mm -hmm. it's not like, oh, I was this big outcast doing this rebellious thing. But that's what I was relating to as I created these classic striptease numbers to women who had done what I had done in strip joints, but in a much more difficult era for women. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, my God, the burlesque world of, you know, 80, no, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, I mean, completely different, especially for women of color, but even mm-hmm. for, you know, just being a woman who took her clothes off for others' entertainment and titillation, I mean, and I feel like even now, <clears throat> certainly depending on certain regions or states, I mean, that is still a major issue, but it is nothing compared to what it used to be. In a lot of ways. Right. And, you know, it's easy for us to think of the rock stars of burlesque at the time, you know, the people who achieved uh, fame or made money, but that isn't, that's far from everybody who was in burlesque at the time. Yeah. Absolutely. Because I, I would imagine the ones who made the money, they're the ones whose names are the most recognizable. Mm-hmm. Or there's, you know, s- and they got arrested a bit. Like, everybody, everybody I know now in burlesque is just dying to get arrested. <laughs> Like, wouldn't that be cool? Um, on Pen Curl Magazine, pencurlmag.com, there's this great series of burlesque arrests. There's a, a no way. there's actually a section of, I oh think there's like six or seven God. stories about burlesque arrests, yeah. Back in the day or more? Back more in the current? day. Okay. I'm not sure. I, I'm not, nothing's coming to mind of current arrests. I just, know, I know more of, for current stories, I know more of women who've gotten fired from their jobs because they have been discovered to be a burlesque dancer. Yes. Well, that's a tough one to address because it involves keeping a secret, which could mm. is probably a violation of policy in a lot of places. Mm. You know, that I mean that that to me is completely virgin territory. I mean, yeah. I, I'm very fortunate to have created my life, so I don't need to answer to you know or hide anything yeah. from a boss. Well, Kembra Fowler from the voluptuous horror of Karen Black has been a big inspiration to me. Yeah. 
Um, she said one time, I think she said this a bunch of times, but I was, I saw or I heard her say it at this. She was presenting to Mensa, like a group of Mensa <laughs> people, and she was in full, you know, Kemba drag. And she said, um, well, you know, once a woman has presented herself naked in public, she's considered to be ruined. So I ruined myself as early as possible and got that over with. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. what a quote. I know. God. She's like, she, so she's like, I've ruined my life. Next question. It was amazing. I was like, yeah, that's kind of how I felt. I could not wait to get that past that step. Like, let me go ahead and break down that barrier socially. I want to, you know, get so naked, can... be the hooker, be the stripper. I don't want there to be any question about whether or not I'm a Madonna or a whore. I want you to know which category I'm in right now. Now, whore, now. <laughs> and so you can I'm not your mother. Do, what you're yeah. want, do what you wanted to do. It felt closer mm. to doing what I wanted to do. But um, one of the things I started fighting against before I was even working in the sex industry was sort of this discrimination against uh, sexual behavior and sexual literature and mm -hmm. um in high school i was got into a big war with my high school over uh some books they took out of the library that i was reading and evidently they didn't know what they were until i read them they hadn't been checked out before <laughs> one of them was rabelais you know so i thought like, oh this is awesome <laughs> um oh you at rabelais oh the it's dirty <laughs> it's raunchy it's raunchy and it's um you know, it's, you know, Beavis and Butthead a little bit. <laughs> like yeah. classic French literature? Yeah, quite. It's beautifully written. You I'm know, sure. I mean, I don't know. I'm reading it in English. Um, and I was reading a lot of French surrealist poets, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, reading Burroughs, which is, you know, queer and graphic and uh, all that stuff in high school. And they were like, I don't think we should have that in the library. And I said, like, you can't take my dirty books away from me. <laughs> so I joined this, um, there was a bookstore there that uh, worked with me on it. And it was, we had all these buttons that said, I read banned books. It was this whole thing. And I studied, you know, the history of the First Amendment and, you know, banning literature in countries where they don't have the First Amendment. And I was obsessed with it. So that, but that to me related to, you know, shaming sexuality. Like I thought about, <laughs> I was working on an essay called Taint, <laughs> <laughs> which is, which is about the moment that sexuality touches anything, it's assumed to be devalued. Like one time I was, I did a number as a nurse and this nurse wrote a letter about how angry she was that nursing was being sexualized. Uh, it's about how many centuries too late on that boat? Well, I don't know. I mean, that doesn't—that wasn't even my thought. I, I was like, "What's wrong with?" I mean, being a sexy nurse, or what? What if I said you were a good cook? I mean, I don't know. You know, it's like, why? Why did that make her feel insulted? Why yeah. did that make her feel degraded? You know. So that always interested me. Why is the touch of sexuality? instantly considered somehow degrading or trivializing. I mean, that, I mean, that, and I feel it's, I mean, there's a very uniquely American perspective on that. I mean, just given the puritanical roots of our country and saying, you know, establishing all this stuff in religious freedom and saying, you know, we want to live the way we want to live, but then sex is still super no, 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 no. They wanted to have the religion they wanted to have. That's not the same thing as saying we want the religion, we want to live the way we want to live. That the basis of, of the 
You mean the? I mean, I mean the, the, the Puritans, but then also, I guess, I'm referencing also like the Declaration of Independence, and you know, after the Revolutionary War, just saying like. Oh, I see. Okay, is, I thought you were talking I, about I the Puritans. Blending. I was like, no, 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 oh, no. no, 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 no. The Puri- well, I mean, the, the Puritans, Puritans had just their wanted their religion. Way, yeah. yeah. And all the fucked up stuff that went with it. Yeah, I wasn't there, but it doesn't sound like it was all that great. No, it would have sucked. <laughs> my God, are you kidding me? Jesus. I, my mom one time said to me, she goes, what if you still lived in an age where they stoned women like you to death? I'm like, I'd be dead. I mean, what do you, <laughs> this isn't, I don't know how much of a choice this is, you know? <laughs> Being public about it is more of a choice, but my, I mean, don't you feel like, Absolutely. you know? Yeah. I mean, there's a huge amount of shame still associated with sexuality and expressing of one's sexual nature, even sexual preference, which is, and both of those are completely innocent. You know, as long as nobody's being harmed in the process, mm-hmm. um, unwillingly, you know. Yeah. But, I mean, there's, I feel our country certainly has a, a long way to come. But that being said, we're also far ahead of plenty of other countries in the world right now with regards to that. But, I mean, bringing it back to sex work, um, I mean, I can only begin to imagine, I mean, you must have stories upon stories upon stories of different interactions, different attacks from the media, different... Oh, yeah. I mean, the take that I got from um, working at an international level on sex work activism was certainly that everywhere that I could encounter sexuality was considered to trivialize and degrade Hmm. anything, (laughs) you know? And it's interesting because people, I, I don't know, I it, I did not get the impression from any of the people that I met that there was enormous sexual freedom in their country and that they didn't think that sex was somehow funny, dirty in a way that I don't need for it to be sacred. Mm. It just need for it to not be um, considered degrading. Because mm. I like one of the, one of the things like I was working with a lot of sex worker worker activists and they're like I'm doing sacred work. I'm like. I'm not. I'm in it for the buck, and I think that's just fine. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that you're, you know, engaging your goddess power. That is incredible. I am not. I am in it for the money, just like anybody else that goes to work, and that's what I want respected. I want it respected that I'm working for a living, mm-hmm. that I'm part of the community in which I work. I am not dropped from a spaceship every night to do sex work and ruin the community and then taken back up after the community is ruined. I'm in the community. I'm part of it. Um, that kind of thing. So it was just really interesting. Like once you are tagged sexual, like, like Paris Hilton, Mm -hmm. you know, she does sex tape and saying someone has a sex tape is like make, it's just considered incredibly disparaging. Um, we can make fun of them now. They have a sex tape. I think, you know, I just, I mean, I don't really think Paris Hilton needs me to defend her, but it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody that has a sex tape, oh, they're trash. Yeah, or at least people, I mean, the thing that I'm just flashing to is how both Paris Hilton and Kim Kardashian got famous because there was a sex tape, not because right. of the existence of a sex tape, but they used that, like their sexuality as their commodity, like their commodification, saying like, I'm this gorgeous, you know, object that, you know, is really beautiful to look at for a lot of people and I'm going to use that to my advantage. I guess I'm, I'm sort of... Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say what happened there, but I actually... The, yeah. Conversation. I actually 
as far as like, you know, them being able to exploit that situation, I, I doubt they created it. Or if they did create it, I doubt they anticipated the amount of loathing that would be heaped upon them. Yeah, and I have to say, like, everyone's like, oh, they're rich and famous, who cares? And I, you know, true, you know, to an extent. But, I mean, I say this, like, every time I, like, I, I think of fame being, the experience of being famous seems so repulsive to me. Mm. Having, I mean, you've been around celebrities and seen what happens. It doesn't look like any fun, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, but I've also then been around celebrities or famous people who are just totally secure in that and know they don't need to prove anything. I mean, the the physical experience of walking down the street, going into a restaurant, the daily life of being famous seems utterly repulsive to me. Oh, absolutely. That level of constantly having people coming up to you when you're just trying to get through your day. Yeah, it just is so gruesome looking to me. Um, Yeah. You know, I don't know. That's just what goes through my mind. No, absolutely. But, um... But yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I'm not I'm not a champion of these people. I'm just saying that to the general public, the idea that they've had a sex tape trivializes them. Mm. I'm just isolating that fact. Okay. I mean, I have I have all kinds of opinions on celebrity culture in general, but I don't even want to get on that track. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just keep it to the sex. Yeah, we'll stick on the sex. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of people commenting on celebrity culture. Yeah. I mean, popular culture in general has changed so much over the last, you know, 10 years, five years even. I mean, flashing back Yeah, it's back fascinating. To, and, I mean, I, a lot of that is definitely spurred by the Internet and the sort of insatiable, like, you know, gossip news, this, that, the other thing. And, I mean, it's crazy. It's a different It's a different speed of things. And the fact that, I mean, bring it back to your website, the fact that you were, you know, on the Internet from the word go. I was on the internet in the 80s. I was doing Usenet groups and stuff like that when I was in high school because my friends, well, my friend's family were programmers. My best friend's family were programmers. Oh, wow. So you had, you had an in. Yeah. So they, there were, you know, there were several of them doing it out of their house and they had these things set up and evidently they got quite wealthy off of it. Um, I won't name the company, but anyway, so they, so I was looking at these Usenet groups a little bit. Um, so I remember when I bought, I first bought, I was like, World Wide Web, what the hell? You know, <laughs> the first time I saw Windows, I was like, how do I control things? You know, because I was used to working in DOS. And so, yeah. Of course, every single time I look at a new piece of technology, I mean, I totally have that, you know, the rigidity of the brain as I get older where I'm like, I don't want to learn a new operating system. No. <laughs> <laughs> But, Understandably, um, Jesus. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm on my new tab. Like on my, I've been experimenting with tablets. I'm on like my fourth one. Going, maybe you're it. You know. Why can't you just do what I say? <laughs> Why can't you just do what my last computer did? Oh God. But yeah. I'm sure it's coming. All this sentient everything. But the but pop culture in general, I feel like you know the fact that there's so much information coming in, it starts to get at the same. Effect is if there's no information coming in. Absolutely, it like you can a so vacuum. yeah, or you get so much confusing information, or you can so specialize your world that you don't have to hear about anything you don't want to hear about. You know, it's like just having, you know, either a conservative or a liberal news station on all the time. You don't have to hear anything you don't want to hear. So totally, I grew up with the conservative station on all the time. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. Evidently, I've gotten a lot out of it. <laughs> the highlight of my entire life so far, my entire public life, was um, when I was on the sex workers art show tour, 
and we got in. There was a kerfluffle at this college, William and Mary. Oh, right down in Virginia. I remember reading about yeah. that. Yeah. And then Rush, or not Rush Limbaugh. What's his name? The horrible. Falwell? No, Bill O'Reilly. Oh, sour face, psychotic. Anyway, so um, they were. he was talking about this kerfluffle, and obviously he was opposed to the sex workers art show. And they showed a little clip of me in the corner doing my gig, and he looked up at it and did that, you know, frown face and shook his head with such disgust. I was like, I have lived my life right. <laughs> Everything in my life led up to this moment of Bill perfect. Yeah. Snarling at me. Perfect. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It was, wow. it was like, yes. <laughs> you had to look at me and hate me. <laughs> I've had to look at you so many times, you pig. You know, it's just like, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, it's awesome. Hi, yeah. still, I'm still high off of it. Like That was 2007. I'm still excited about it. <laughs> As you well should be, my God. <laughs> Not every day somebody can say that Bill O'Reilly disapproved of them. Oh, he was disgusted by me. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, the, the Sex Workers Art Show Tour, that was... The first time, and I mean, I that was right when I first started getting into burlesque and reading about, it was the first tour, the one that you first went on was with Dirty and Julie. And I went with Dirty and Julie. Um, the school of burlesque had already been existing about since 2002 or 2003. Right, right. Um, but I was not doing burlesque on that tour. You were doing, were you talking? I was doing? talking, yeah. I was doing a piece uh, called 10,000 Table Dances, which awesome. is about, and that's an accurate number, um, about how many table dances I did while I was in college. Wow. What was the response like to that show? I mean, they, what, it was your piece into the entire art show itself? Sold out shows at universities and theaters of like four to a thousand, 400 to a thousand, um, and it was the first time I realized, it's so funny, it was like the first time I realized I wasn't a college kid, <laughs> you know, and I'm 40-some. Um, but um, we were very well received. It really, it didn't seem to be that controversial. We were doing a lot of stuff with uh, queer groups and sexuality groups and that kind of thing. And I, at first, I, w I was like, it's been fascinating to me to discover that queer communities, um, many, many, like, community groups, you know, that are many organizations identify with sex workers, which has been really interesting to me because mm. it wouldn't have occurred to me originally yeah. because our clientele, you know, the clients of sex workers certainly don't identify with the queer community, yeah. you know. Um, that's a safe general statement to make. No offense to all our queer clients. <laughs> um, so, it, and I had always felt that I was queer, you know, and I've, I, I code less straight than I used to, but I've always coded pretty straight. Mm. Pretty, you know, straight. You By know. coding being, like, being I, people as... People observe, think of me as straight when they meet me, yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, I was a punk rocker and everything in high school, so... And it was because when I was young, I, you know, I started going to Rocky Horror, and I was really happy there. Um, I got the whole football team to come, which didn't go over that well with them, but they, you know, they saw it. Um... <laughs> Well done. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, why did you get up there and take off your clothes? I'm like, it's a performance. I'm performing. And they were like, oh, okay, sure. You know, like whatever. <laughs> In high school, yeah. 
Um, but then when I got out of high school and I started working in strip joints, I found this, um, there was this gay bar called The Saint, this all-night gay bar called The Saint in Atlanta. And um, also this incredible place where I saw like John Sex and Jane, it's where I know Jane County from. Um, and RuPaul was there and all these people. Club Rio was amazing. And I was hanging out there and I just loved the aesthetic and I loved the vibe, but it was so, uh, most of the time, so primarily gay that I couldn't get laid, which I was, you know, in my 20s, I was young, dumb, and full of cum, and I got really impatient. <laughs> so I found sort of a similar aesthetic in heavy metal, you know, the hair, the makeup, the tight clothes. I mean, not quite as carefully thought out, but... Um, but they would have sex with me. Which was... Yeah, I'm not saying nobody at Club Rio ever had sex with me. But <laughs> Less the record. Oh, man, all, all you had to do in rock and roll was wait for last call. You know, if it was a slow night. The it's magic. Like, last, last call, want to go to the bathroom? Oh, my gosh. Yes, bathroom sex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you ever saw the movie The Decline of Western Civilization Part 2... I knew a lot of those people. That was my life. That was wow. 100% my life. Yeah. Noted to self, I will watch that. Decline of Western Civilization Part 2 is not an uplifting film. I did not find heavy metal to be an uplifting environment. Yeah, that must have been quite a, quite a moment to live. It's one of the most misogynistic, homophobic communities mm-hmm. I've ever encountered, yeah. Wow. Yeah. My gosh. But there's lots of sex and drugs. Check and check. Yeah. Yeah, I got what I came for. <laughs> and I came for what I got. <laughs> oh, my God. So, yeah. Wow. So, you know, goals achieved, but I would not say it was a lovely, lovely world. You know. It'll make for good reading one day. It's hard to write about. I mean, I know yeah. that none of those people would care. I thought about writing about it. I've ri- I wrote an entire novel about it, actually, but it it was a very bad novel. Like, I just, I sat in a house for a month and wrote a novel called All Tomorrow's Parties, about that era of my life, and I, it was so bad. No. Oh, no, still, it's bad. Do you still have it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've written a couple of bad books that nobody's ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> I had, when I was young and, pretend, and intellectually pretentious, because when I was young, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm very smart, and that's why the world is against me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, youth. Oh, oh, God. Nobody understands me because I'm so intelligent. <laughs> I really thought that, yeah. Um, but anyway, so I wrote this book called Ontology. That was my philosophy ah. because I had, you know, I had read like a chapter of Descartes. You know, I figured I could write a book of philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> I understood that chapter, the whole thing about the other. But yeah, so. Oh my god. Yeah, the curse of the person who thinks they're the smartest person in the room, man. That Oof. is. I would not wish that on anybody. That is a heavy curse. It is terrible. It is a fucking burden. It is terrible. You move to New York, get it knocked right out of you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially yeah, if you have sense, get it knocked out of you sooner rather than later. I wish I had come to New York a little sooner. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so, I mean, you know, I mean, in a room full of, you know, heavy metal people, I was, I may not have been the smartest person in the room, but I was the only person who cared about being smart. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> it had that, yeah, by default. Yeah. Wow. I hear remember like one this rock star one time. I said something about a book, and he's like, "I don't want to talk about books. Chicks are always asking me if I've read this book. I hate books. I like Black Sabbath." Like. <laughs> 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 oh 
my God. Yeah, it was awesome. Wow. I had some of my favorite quotes in life were from that one guy. Wow. It was so good. Any other you can think of? From that particular guy, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I was in AA at the time, and he had been in and out of AA, and I'd known him for a long time. I mean, we, we knew, you know, people just knew each other. Um, and I, you know, we ran into each other one night when I was working. He came in, and he's like, hey, head down, you know, and I would get tell his manager, you know, you have to give me a couple hundred bucks. I'm not going to sit here for free. <laughs> so the manager would give us the money because the, the rock stars didn't handle their own money most of the time uh. in these clubs. Some of them did. Um, so we're talking, and he's super wasted. And he's like, I see you sitting there judging me. You're not drinking. I'm like, I'm not judging you. I don't, you know, that's your own jam. And he said, well, do you want to know why I'm drinking again? I said, I would, I'm fascinated, yes, do tell me. Because he had been very determined not to drink because something really tragic had happened to him. Mm. Um, and he said, well, I'm in L.A., and in L.A., um, the famous people decided that they have to have their own Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. <laughs> Because the unfamous people didn't understand. Oh, I feel so guilty telling this story. <laughs> Not because of him. He wouldn't care. <laughs> There's another reason, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Okay. All right. Um, so, so we formed the famous people's Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. <laughs> Everybody in AA is going to kill me. Um, so then um, the actors... And the rock stars decided that they didn't understand each other. So they had actors, famous people's meetings, and rock stars, famous people's meetings. Then the really, this is him talking to me. Um, Then the really famous rock stars decided that the other musicians didn't really understand the experience that they were having, how hard it was for them not to drink. And then he just stopped. And I said, so what what happened? He goes, I decided I was better off if nobody understood me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's brilliant. And I said, actually, I understand that perfectly. (laughs) Oh, he was so funny. Oh, my God. Wow. Jesus. That's that's crazy. Yeah, he's great. In in my novel, I killed him. Oh. (laughs) Is that satisfying? Um, Probably for a lot of people, yeah. If they had read it, they would have gone, I know who that is, and I'm glad he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) But I loved him. I mean, he's really fun. But I didn't, I, you know, I didn't interact with him on a business level. No, of course. Except no. to have his manager give me money for sitting there and listening to him tell these crazy stories. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. Hot damn. Yeah, it was really fun. I should be more ashamed of that, but I'm just not. No way. I think that's, I think that's fucking awesome. I mean, especially to be able to talk but about But I'm in AA now. So yeah. Just, yeah. I still am. Or I am again. So. I yeah. took a little detour for a couple of years there and went back. So, no, I think it's great. You're you're definitely one of the sort of sober like rocks in the community, which I appreciate. I mean, I'm not sober, but I also don't I don't consider myself having any problems with alcohol. So, but it's, most people really don't. I mean, yeah. I'm not. I'm just I just don't drink that much. Period. But I think it's. I mean, I think it's great. I do yeah. tend to like though at like after midnight I'm ready to go home. <laughs> like nothing good happens after two a.m. I've got to go. I don't understand what anybody's saying. <laughs> I feel left out. Um, but I'm yeah. It's been it's been a really good experience to be like I was sober for a long time in strip joints. I was sober for a long time in burlesque, and it's been a really great experience to mm-hmm. um, be present for a lot of the amazing things that have happened. So. Yeah, my gosh. I mean, yeah, Lord knows how many times I've stumbled home in a post-show haze, and it's just been, I 
You know, I check my phone the next day. I'm like, oh my God, where are these ridiculous photos of all my topless friends? And being like, oh yeah, that totally happened. Whereas you can probably oh no, it happens to me sober. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it's usually butt pictures. But yeah, yes, you 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 not only do you have a fine posterior, but you also <laughs> take some fine butt shots. I love butt shots, man. It's one of my favorite things about the internet: pictures of people's butts. <laughs> I mean, yay for, you know, the global communication factor and everything, but butts, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yes to butts. Yes. Oh, my God. And I have to say, you're one of the first people I ever knew to create assholes on stage. I don't remember who the first person that I saw do assholes on stage was. I remember um, I saw Pink Ink had assholes, but I, I had seen assholes in a film of Ann Corio's This Was Burlesque oh by a performer, gosh. Phoenix Flame, which I want to say is from the 70s. Wow. So I just didn't think of assholes as innovative because to me they were, you know, decades old. Mm-hmm. And for those people who are listening to this podcast who have no idea what an asshole is, could you provide that definition? Well, I'll start by saying what tassels are. Um, you know, our pasties are usually round. They can be any shape. They can be elephant-shaped. I'm looking at an elephant right now, which is why I find it. And we were talking about the elephant either. And it is the elephant in the room. So um, they could be – so pasties are usually round, and people wear them to cover their nipples for legal or aesthetic reasons. Um, and if you sew a tassel in the middle um, and you bounce, the tassel will twirl. Oh, physics. Physics, yes. You can control the direction of the tassels by changing the position of your shoulders. Um, so if you put those on your butt instead of over your nipples and you do you twerk, they'll twirl. Twerking also not new to me. Twerking also for me goes back to hasn't it always existed? I can't remember a time when I didn't see it. I mean, I get the association with bounce culture, which is very specific. Right. But I cannot remember ever not seeing people do that. Wow. Yeah. I mean, for me, it just goes way back. I can remember it being less popular and not having a name. Mm-hmm. When was the first time you were you recall seeing what is now called twerking? I want to say in the media or or in person, like even at some of those. Well, the woman the woman in that that film was shaking her butt, you know, specifically doing butt moves mm. in the seventies. Um, probably consciously in a lot of uh, man, it's, oh man, I don't. I mean, in strip joints, obviously, because I worked in strip joints, um, and then. And on television, probably the first time, man, I want to say, it's hard for me to remember because I don't remember these videos perfectly. Mm-hmm. I want to say Baby Got Back and um, MC oh, Hammer. Yeah. Uh-huh. God, I remember that. And game. all the, in the clubs where I worked, they played all that music and everybody, we all did. I can't do it anymore. I used to be able to dance like a fly girl. But I broke my knee when I was like 25. And, Ay, Jesus. Oh, who cares? I, know. I, I, I get by. <laughs> but it sucks, so I can't do any of that fly girl stuff anymore. Um, but we were all doing all the fly girl stuff, and then when those videos came out, we all did that. So we just did whatever we saw in videos on, on stage. Oh, my God. As much as we could without putting our knees more than six inches apart. Lest you break the law. Lest we break the law and destroy society as we know it. <laughs> oh, that poor, fragile, delicate society. Yeah, so for me it's interesting to hear all these adoptions about, you know, like uh, the idea of co-opting black culture. And I, 
I know it's true, and I'm listening to these conversations, but at the time, I, it just seemed like more about integrating rather than uh, co-opting. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that conscious because MTV was just MTV. Like, if it's on MTV, it's MTV. Yeah. So we were responding to MTV rather than to... Um, that's part of what I mean about media getting so propagated and so... Um, oriented toward a niche, you know, it wasn't that we didn't see color, but we saw the same things everywhere, happening everywhere, because we were responding to MTV. Yeah. Jesus, I mean, now, I have to say, when we were talking a little earlier about, like, sex tapes and all that, I had had an image in my mind that I tried to push out of the infamous Miley Cyrus VMA thing, which... I know she's... Man, if there had been the kind of media around... When I was her age, I was not <laughs> one bit smarter or more worthy when I was her age. Absolutely. I saw a picture of Lindsay Lohan a few years ago, and she's like on the cover of the New York Post, passed out in a car with Coke around her nose, and all I could feel was a sense of affinity. I mean, at that age, I was no smarter, no better. Yeah. At the same time, Jesus, who let that on the stage? Yeah. Who let her dad grind on her? I just can't. I couldn't. I mean, I know that sounds judgy, but maybe it is. I mean, I just didn't really. That whole, I, I, and just oh. the structure of it, you know, is she, it, it was structured like, you know, these are my employees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I feel, I feel for, uh, I, I'm surprised that there wasn't a better you know, like somewhere along the line, someone made an, a better aesthetic judgment call. That's a, that's a delicate way. But we're a culture of being outraged. It's true. We love to get upset. We do. We love to get upset. There's actually, I can't remember the name of the the chemical that gets in our brain when we get upset. Oh. People actually get high off of being angry and upset, and they get Jesus. addicted to it. And there's actually proof that haters going to hate that. The more people hate, the more likely they are to hate. The more judgmental they are, the more likely to be judgmental so they are. They the carb, the path in the brain. Exactly, yes. They burn those those tracks in their brain. So, Shit. you know, and that's part of, like, that was part of my thing as an activist is I was around all these people who were like, you've got to get angry and stay angry. Mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And I'm like, I am angry. And I do think people should definitely not suppress their anger. But I don't think that being angry is a necessary component of getting things done. And I don't think that when I come forward and speak angrily, and I have shit to be angry about, you know, my my friends are losing their kids and losing their housing, and they can't get jobs, and and it's all because of the way that they're legal at that time. I was doing legal work, legal sex work. Their legal job is being held against them, and they're losing their kids, and I'm pissed. Um, describing myself as angry and describing my feelings about it was ca- always counterproductive at that time. Mm. So I always had to couch it in terms of the interests of the people that were listening to me because I was not talking to other feminists or activists at that time. I was speaking to the government, and I was speaking to city council members, and I was speaking to property owners, and I had to find a way that my interests dovetailed with theirs in order to get my way. Mm. Um, and, you know, I have written a lot about how I felt about stuff, but um, in those situations where I wanted a certain result, you know, um, please don't close down this strip joint. We need it to eat. Um, or 
not we need it to eat, which is no, they're, they don't care about that. Um, but, you know, talking about um, we don't think this is a good job. We just want it. You know, we're not saying that stripping is an awesome job. We're saying that it's a useful job. It's a functional job. We are, uh, we are not affecting your property values. You haven't proved that. And even if you have, you do not have a constitutional right to have your property values go up. You cannot say there goes the neighborhood to us. And so a lot of times it wasn't about being, you know, I, not necessarily just expressing that I was uh, things in their interest, but it's like you're breaking the law. It's in your best interest to not break the law by discriminating against us. It behooves you not to shut us down. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it was rather threatening. And it was interesting being this, like, 25-year-old woman <laughs> with bleach blonde hair <laughs> coming in and, you know, mouthing off at these people and, you know, having to sit and talk with lawyers about is this is this feasible, is this an actual legal argument, and we would talk about it for hours and how we had to phrase it and everything. Wow. So I couldn't just go in there and be an angry woman. And I was angry, you know, but I wanted, I wanted to win. I wanted to prevail. Yeah. I didn't want to win. I know you can never win this stuff because the pendulum swings back and forth, but I want to keep the conversations going. Yeah. So sometimes we prevailed and sometimes we didn't. You know, I didn't actually get into talking to feminists about sex work until much later. Hmm. I was so used, that's why it was weird, you know, I was so used to um, arguing for our, our interests in, against, you know, these very patriarchal institutions. To be having the exact same arguments with feminists later was just absolutely shock. It was the most shocking thing. Like I, it changed the way my brain was shaped. I think I was so shocked. I was like, I was like, wait, 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 wait. Okay, so I don't want anything bad to happen to sex workers, and you don't want anything bad to happen to sex workers, and we are each other's worst enemies. Is that what's happening? Like that blew me away. It blew me away. Wow. Like all these women whose work I greatly admired. You know, women who had done fantastic work on behalf of you know, domestic violence and trafficked women and everything. And I found myself in opposition to them. And I was like, well, I must be wrong if I'm in opposition to them. But then I would see the government and the Catholic Church and other patriarchal organizations support them. And I was like, well, maybe this is a little more complicated than I think because this puts me in opposition to the government and the church, which I'm used to being in opposition to. (laughs) You know, like it was very complicated. It really wasn't. It never did get black and white. It never did. I never was 100% satisfied. I don't think you can ever, I don't think it's safe to be 100% satisfied with any polarized position. I agree. But I didn't expect it to be that polarized. I expected there to be ideological, you know, clashes and heated arguments and, you know, before we made public statements, but I didn't expect actual opposition. Mm. Wow. Yeah. They're like, you're part of the problem. It's like, well, let me go think about that for a couple of weeks and I'll come back and talk to you again. And I would go and I would think about it for a couple of weeks and I would look at my friends in the sex industry and I'd come back and go, I still think what I said I thought before. And I appreciate your input. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it was yeah. rough. Wow. Mm-hmm. And, we, and when, I, when I ran into you the other day, um, you we had spoken very briefly about this, about how you know some women were anti-trafficking Right. But then it would also... I would hope that every fucking buddy is anti-trafficking. Absolutely. Absolutely. But then... I would hope that even traffickers are anti-trafficking. <laughs> I think everybody should be anti-trafficking. Yes. 
but then equating it on some level within these people's minds with anti-prostitution. Right. Which are two completely different things. Yeah. I mean, the connection is understandable, obviously, but yeah. But one involves consent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one involves absolutely no consent. Yeah. And not even being able to Well, they, there were a lot of very philosophical arguments about what constituted uh, consent. Really? Oh, yeah. They, there were... There still are endless, endless discussions about what constitutes consent. Well, there's a concept of uh, financial coercion, Mm -hmm. um, which is you're doing these things only because you have no other choice financially. Okay. Um, So you have been financially and socially coerced. I'm like, I, you know, which I think falls under, you know, a lot of Marxist definitions of being the definition of having a job. Um, but at the same time, not to trivialize it, I mean, it's a worthy argument. Um, and I think it's worth thinking about, you know, to what extent are people financially coerced? Mm -hmm. But I think there are a lot of people that aren't. And I was working in environments where we were encountering a lot of people who were in unquestionably forced situations or, uh, what I, what I generally think of as trafficking is, uh, someone is offered something if they travel Mm. for work, but the work is not what they were told it would be. So if they say, well, you know, we have work for you as um, a waitress in this very fine restaurant, and they get there and there is no fine restaurant, there's just a strip joint, and they owe all this money and they have to work there, uh, that, yes, that's trafficking, but that's also already illegal. that falls into a lot of different categories of illegal. Hmm. There are a lot of laws against the elements of that transaction. And a lot of international treaties against that type of transaction. Yeah. So um, I don't have any complicated feelings about that. That that upsets me and I'm opposed to it. Yeah. Uh, About whether or not I work in a strip joint because it pays more than working at McDonald's, I'm not 100% sure that's what I mean by financial coercion. Mm -hmm. So it gets very murky. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in terms of, you know, for a lot of it, it falls into um, arguments. For me, what I became more concerned with were arguments about labor and work and discrimination and uh, the difficulty of moving from one class to another. Like we say, we don't have a case system in the United States, but the single um, factor in your life that makes it the most likely that you will become a doctor is if your parents are doctors. Mm -hmm. We do have an an unstated case system in terms of what jobs you can get and how how, uh, mobile people are financially. So, you know, I I went to work for the money, definitely, and I don't see a problem with that. I did not feel... Uh, that it was my only financial option. Um, And some of my decisions about going into the sex industry were far from honorable. (laughs) You know, it's like there were times when I was like, oh, I don't want to get a job where I can't do drugs, you know. Um, (laughs) But that wasn't part of my argument, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) I need a safe place to do drugs. Um, I need an environment in which they can't tell if I'm high. You know, which could well be, you know, the rigmarole for some people looking for work. 
Well, it's so funny because I always assumed that, you know, like I was working in strip joints because I could drink openly. And I had a friend who was a stockbroker, um, and he goes, oh, no, I have to drink at my job. Yeah. He's like, start at that time, this is like the 80s, he's like, I have to drink to keep my job. I have drinking is part of my job. I was like, oh. And he had very strong feelings about it. You know, he was in and out of um, sobriety. So. Oh, shit. Yeah. So it kind of gave me a perspective, like, the problems with uh, the sex industry are not unique enough to be the reason to shut it down. The, even if you add them all up. So, anyway, um, there seem to be advantages to working legally as opposed to illegally, for the most part, as yeah. a sex worker. My gosh. It's so, I mean, how, if people want to learn more about, you know, not just about trafficking, but like, I'm, well, I'm, I think there's a lot of important information out there about trafficking. I worked some, with some incredible activists in um, South Africa and France and India. And India has the most sophisticated and savvy um, network um, of uh, sex worker activists and um, people who perceive, uh, perceive is the wrong word, people who work on trafficking is phenomenal. Wow. The, in, India's... At, uh, networks are so sophisticated it's incredible that's so happy I mean that makes me so happy to hear because I mean I've spent a bit of time in India and just that's the first place I've ever been you know certainly not first world by any stretch of the imagination but not quite third world either but we're in well the third world is everywhere <laughs> you're right right I mean I guess the, I'm, I'm, I know what you mean I, I know what you mean though but I was uh, there's this one tiny village I was in, and, and I'm was, referring to the activist community. I'm yes. not referring to India. Um, but with regards to the, you know, how that sex trafficking or <sighs> coerced sex work, unfortunately, does exist. Um, I mean, all over the oh, place. Oh, it's epic. And in India, was the first place I ever came up against it. Yeah, was a guy I was it's horrifying. With, took a walk around the hotel where we were both staying at. And um, was offered by a guy who lived in like this one hut, you know, in, in, in a small collection of huts. It wasn't like a shanty town. It wasn't, you know, the slums, but, you know, very modest. And he said, you know, I have a 14 year old daughter, you know, and it only cost you like 200 rupees or something, which is like four bucks, you know. And he was just like, no, no. Yeah, it's horrifying. No. And he came back and told me, I was, because I, I, I've heard about this forever. Oh, that'll keep but, you up at night for weeks. Jesus Christ. Yeah, to realize it was happening a matter of feet away mm. from where I was. and It, it always it, is. It always is, exactly. That's when I realized, like, oh, my God, especially growing up in New York City where you don't know what life is going on on the other side of the wall. That's why I apartment. say the third world is right here. Yeah. It's all, you know. But, but part of that was that knowing about those experiences and also, you know, some of the people that I worked with were not in as good a situation as I was. Mm. So... Part of that is I didn't want to conflate what you just described with the experience that I had. Right. And thank you for that because there um, are many different degrees. I, I'm not saying I had a great experience in the sex industry, but it was not coerced. It was nothing like that. Nothing like that happened to me. Mm. So, And I was exposed to at least 2,000 other sex workers in my career as a sex worker, and I found that to be rare where I was. Um, I studied a lot of other environments 
than the one I was in and have seen a lot of other things. But I do think that there needs to be, you know, why was my experience better? Why do you think that was? That's what's interesting to me. Follow the trail. Why is this sex worker better off than that one? Mm. That's what's interesting to me. If you equate them all to be the same, you can't study the conditions, the, cl the class structure breakdown that creates the conditions that are basically like no life at all for one person and a lot of freedom and mobility. And I mean, look where I am now, you know, all the things I've been able to do. I had those opportunities where another person might have much much less, if any, access to those opportunities. You can't equate those two people because you can't study the differences if you equate them to be the same thing. That was my problem. I was like, they're not the same thing. It isn't that one is, it isn't that one is great. It's not like I'm recommending you try my job. I'm not recommending it. I'm just saying it's not that experience. Those are two different legal problems. Oh, they're all tied together. I'm like, everything is all tied together. You know? Yeah. And that, you know, and then that also leaves out things like trafficking into the garment industry and the agricultural industry, both of which can be phenomenally dangerous, physically dangerous. Um, you know, like if you've seen a, you know what I'm talking about. What's the movie where people are trafficked into? Traffic? They're, oh, no, traffic, traffic yeah. is about drug traffic and <laughs> arms traffic. Um, I don't know. I'm 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 notorious into 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 like the meatpacking industry and stuff like that, where they come for one job, they end up basically doing slave labor, working uh, in these. No, I don't meat know. Anyway, yeah. I'm not. It's not I'm coming. Somebody out there movies. is screaming the name at you know. But anyway, so it's it's not all the same experience. People don't come to these places for the same reasons. They don't have the same degree of agency and mobility, and you have to make those distinctions in order to understand how to address the problems. Mm -hmm. You cannot address the problems if you can't distinguish between the situations of those two extremes. Mm -hmm. That's my opinion. So I was saying, working, the people that were opposed to me were saying they're the same thing. I was like, they, they're not. They don't come from the same place, except that, you know, sexism and... Um, you know, financial exploitation uh, are matters of degree, mm -hmm. but that isn't just the sex industry. You know, the sex industry is unique. It's not just work, but that was my main problem. I was like, you're not, uh, you're not looking for any real solutions. You're just really being angry all the time. Wow. You cannot solve these problems if you don't address the actual situations of all the people you're talking to. Can you recommend any authors or websites or journalists whose work that you feel is really enlightening on these sorts of issues? Um, well, I can recommend people I've worked with. I am no longer in that framework, so I don't know what all work is being done now. Mm -hmm. I'm not an activist at this time. Um, my friend, Laura Gustine, uh, has a, a website. Man, I'm sorry. I'd have to open up my browser. You want me to open up my browser? Sure, why not? Well, you'll have to open up yours, actually. No. <laughs> I don't have your internet on here. Oh, I not? can't do it on the iPhone. Um, well, how, while, we're, while we're getting it live, how do you, how do you spell that, Laura Gusty? G-U-S-T-Y? You know what? I have to. I'm going to find her website. Stay tuned. I, you're looking. So you're looking at Google browsing. Like your, right you know now. what? I, this is not working for me. This no. the internet setup. I just can't get to it. Well, you know how about this? If you can say uh, just like their names, and I can. The network of sex work projects. Okay. 
uh, swap, S-W-O-P. I'm sorry, I was not prepared for this question at no all. No worries. <laughs> no, it's all good. And I'm also like right now my head is in the past and I'm trying to remember what's still. What's still coming up. Because I feel like, I mean, there are, I mean, one of the nice things about. There are tons of resources. There are tons of resources. Do a web search for sex work activism. I mean, even like in the New York Times, they Nicholas Kristof talks about trafficked young girls in Asia. Yeah. He's following some around in like Vietnam or Cambodia or something. Yeah. But I mean, I, I know there are lots of inlets, but if anybody wants to read more deeply or any like seminal, um, uh, seminal authors. <laughs> there was some secret you, um, right there. yeah if you want <laughs> if you want to look up uh, resources on trafficking just look up uh, just do a Google search on trafficking and women and um, speaking of Google searches and women minus the trafficking um, I want to be able to point our listeners to read more about you and your work because we I feel like we're only this has been such an informative amazing conversation already an hour has gone by which is incredible um and I want people to read a bit more about you and all the work that you've done that we haven't even been able to touch upon. Um, your burlesque handbook, which is in print right now, which is fucking awesome. Woohoo, still in print. Yeah. Three woo-hoo. years old and still in print. Very big deal. Is, there, has, is it first edition out, second edition? I don't actually know. Okay, never mind. Whatever. Her book's still in print. That's all you need to know. The burlesque handbook. The burlesque handbook. The burlesque handbook. Available for Kindle and Nook. Oh, is it really? Yeah. E-book. If you if you ever want to do me a favor, go into your local bookstore and order a copy of the Burlesque Handbook. Help us keep it in print. Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely support local bookstores, folks. I mean, I and we Amazon quote Legs Malone in there. Hey, hey, that's true. Mm-hmm. I am quoted in that book. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, especially if anybody out there um, is a budding burlesker or enthusiast or knows of somebody who is interested, it makes an extraordinary gift and is brilliantly, and it, it is, is a proper how-to. It is the only uh, book ever published on how to create burlesque routines. That's or the awesome. first. Maybe there's another one that came out today. I don't know. But it is the first <laughs> ever published, which is so bizarre. Like my publisher and I were trying to figure out why. We don't know. <laughs> It's the only, but there, there's also there's some uh, great old handbooks on striptease. Fantastic. Yeah, and I actually I found a thing called the Burlesque Handbook from the 30s. No way. On eBay, and I bought it, and it's a book of completely humorless jokes. Oh Jesus. It's absolutely not charming at all. I was no. really bummed. <laughs> no, no tea, no way. Mm, no good. No good. No good, no good. <laughs> not even funny, and I love bad jokes. People can also find you at schoolofburlesque.com. And you're about to be embarking on a global tour. I'm, well, right? I'm about to embark, embark on a spiritual quest. God bless it, man. <laughs> and I'm also in the process of uh, assembling a team to create a, a performing arts center in New York. Woo-woo. Yeah. Called um, the She Club, and of which the School of Burlesque will be a part. So that's very exciting. That's yeah. very exciting. Yeah, so stay tuned for that. I and definitely there will be, this. yeah, yeah, it will be a good place to do these podcasts. Yes. Oh, my God, you're, totally. Yeah, that's what I want. Live I want that kind of. Club. Mm-hmm, <gasps> mm-hmm. Yes, please. Oh, my God. Let's make this happen. Yeah. Everybody pull together. Absolutely. Yeah, but it's also a place where I want people to be able to have, like, roundtable discussions. Like, I'm putting together right now um, a workshop on street harassment. 
based partly on the hollow back outline for putting together workshops, and we're trying to do it at the GLBT Center. So I want to have events like that where people can come and talk about street harassment, how they handle it, what's happened, what hasn't, how we can raise consciousness about it, that kind of thing. I want a lot more of that to happen. That's a very um, important discussion yeah. to have. And also to find people who are already doing it and give them a forum, you know. Yeah. So. And open people up to those resources that may unfortunately have, you know, especially if one is a particularly beautiful woman, that, you know, that's an issue living in New York City. I, well, my, in the I'm, world, but well, I think, yeah, I mean, if, if people can see you, it's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> All they have to do is spot you. Yeah, so if you you know if you code female, if you if you code effeminate, even, yeah, you get it. So yeah, so I'm interested in that, and uh, and I've always been interested in that. I've read a, a lot of books about street harassment, that kind of thing, and uh, I just want there to be a center where people know that they can come, and where people who want to speak mm-hmm. know that they can do a presentation, and there will be an audience for them. Um, we're integrating Ducky Doolittle's uh, New York Academy of Sex, and she actually does classes on sex for survivors of sexual trauma. Oh, my gosh. Um, wow. And I, she also does, you know, blowjob classes and all that fun stuff. So, you know, and and uh, so I want to have a space for Pink Light Burlesque, which hasn't had a space in which I haven't oh, been able I to do this here. Pink Light Burlesque. Pink Light Burlesque, for those of you who have never heard of it, is burlesque for survivors of breast cancer? It's... Um, Burlesque classes free of charge to survivors of breast cancer, and they've been doing it in Seattle and New Zealand and all this stuff. So, which is amazing. So, I'd like to have a, an ongoing center for that, where you know we're training the survivors to go teach other, you know, people who are in treatment or whatever. And yeah. So. How amazing. Yeah. So let's let's make this center happen. I yeah. cannot do this by myself. The school of burlesque, I can barely do by myself. Yeah. I've been really lucky with the school of burlesque that the burlesque community has been behind it. Like really supportive. Oh my God! Yeah, you are the linchpin for a lot in New York City burlesque. They, the teachers have been amazing, and the students have been amazing. And the more support we get, like the more people that refer to the New York School of Burlesque as an alma mater or whatever, the the better the the better it is for us to keep this community going the way that we have. I Absolutely. hope that we have. Yeah, it's certainly my alma mater. That's for sure. I like it. <laughs> I, it always kills me when I like I'll know someone who's gone to Juilliard and done all this stuff, but they'll have New York School of Burlesque on their education, on their on their burlesque performer webpage. I'm like, oh yeah, I taught her everything she knows. You know? <laughs> she went to Alvin Ailey, but she learned this from us. You know, <laughs> but she perfected her booty balance. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> she got her oh, tassel twirl from us. So. <laughs> Awesome. Well, and also, I want to be sure to direct people to your Wikipedia page, which is apparently... Wiki! <laughs> I got wikied. Apparently, uh, very well-researched. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Complete with articles, and I imagine even a bibliography. I have not been on Yes, I was totally stunned. I was like, how did you find that old magazine article? Who is responsible for this? It was kind of amazing. <laughs> now I know, but yeah, it was. I was... <gasps> Completely blown away. And what is, is that listed as? Joe Weldon? Joe, Joe Weldon. Okay. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure I would love to have you back. I want. Yay, I, thank there's you. so much thank to you talk for, about. Thank you for doing this. This is really a, a beautiful thing that you're doing. Thank you so much. And I can't, and I would hope to be able to have some round tables, um, you know, especially, I mean, a she club you know, edition of Lunch with Legs would be pretty That would be really awesome. fun. Get all the New York School of Burlesque teachers on the round table. Uh, Don and Don. Wait till you hear how we do not agree with each other. That would be really fun. 
I mean, I, it's, it's, it's part of why it works, is that we're not all doing the same thing. God bless that variety, variety in, in numbers. But, uh, but yeah, but thank you so much, Joe. Thank for you for having me. I'm just leaning over my ball. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Until I'm, like, ah, I'm, I'm used to microphones. You have to practically eat. So. <laughs> well, no, thanks to, to thanks to these snowballs, we'll be able to hear everything. But anyway, thank you so much, and uh, thank you. I look forward to seeing you again real soon. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Lunch with Legs podcast featuring Joe Boobs Weldon. If you want to find out more about Joe, please visit her exhaustively researched Wikipedia page. Uh, she is listed under Joe Boobs Weldon, as Joe Boobs is her nickname, Joe Weldon being her full name. She's also all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, you name it. Also, check out the New York School of Burlesque. The email, I'm sorry, the website rather for that is schoolofburlesque.com. You can take classes weekly, monthly, entire workshop series, you name it. All of the classes based right here in New York City are suited for the burlesque novice as well as the more advanced performer. You can also check out her book. You can buy it. You can buy it in actual physical book form. The Burlesque Handbook, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Hey, go to your local bookshop. Order it. Help support that local business. Uh, you can also, if you prefer reading your stuff on your Kindle or your Nook or any other e-reader, the Burlesque Handbook is also available in those formats. Last but not least, check out SwapUSA.org. That's S-W-O-P dot org. That is the sex workers' website for advocacy with the most extraordinary and exhaustive list of links if you want to learn more about sex work advocacy and the different projects therein. Thanks again so much for listening. Have a wonderful week, and I look forward to telling you and sharing with you even more very, very soon. <laughs>